0: Hi there,
1: this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. Got uh, two students back for another quick hitter, somewhat like the quote quick hitter from yesterday which was uh, anticipated to be about 20 minutes and was closer to 50. Uh, How about if we have some introductions? Go ahead, whoever wants to jump in first.
2: My name is Joshua, I'm a third year medical student from Rocky Vista University.
0: And my name is Dave, I'm a fourth year medical student from Rocky Vista University.
2: So this is a kind of an interesting podcast,
1: and uh, we're going to tackle a couple of things. So words have meaning, and sometimes it can cost you four or five billion dollars. And now what do we do since it's muddy? How's that for an introduction? If that doesn't get your attention. Let's see where this goes. Uh, Dave, we're going to talk about gabapentin.
0: Yeah, and uh, and pregabalin.
1: And pregabalin a little bit, yeah, and we're going to. Talk about that from the perspective of somewhat like loperamide, which we did uh, two days ago. Was it yesterday?
2: Yesterday. It's
1: yes, going yes. kind of. It's kind of stacking up on me, <laughs> trying to keep up with this. So we talked about that yesterday in terms of how it is dangerous. Uh, I thought that was a fascinating look at pharmacology and how a number of systems work together. Today we're going to take a little bit different route. We're going to talk about. Um, gabapentin and how it's showing up in morbidity and mortality. We've got some MMWR reports that are guiding us a little bit on this and a number of other articles. So let's start off with some high yield information. We didn't do this with our last podcast. I like to make sure that there's some things that are high yield. So the question that I asked Joshua to take a look at is, Joshua, what are FDA approved treatments
2: for patients with bipolar mania? So yeah, it's important to Make sure that we're specifying bipolar mania versus bipolar depression, which we can probably do at a different uh, podcast. Your main gold standard is still lithium as a mood stabilizer. However, with recent clinical practice is uh, moving towards a more dual therapy with either lithium and an atypical antipsychotic like quetiapine, respiridone, or, or uh, ziprazidone, or valproate, which is an anticonvulsant plus the list of the same atypicals, so.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna interrupt you for just a moment there. I agree that lithium is the gold standard. It has an FDA Mm -hmm. package insert for bipolar mania, and maybe maintenance. I'm not sure that maintenance was an FDA approval when this came through, we had a podcast on this. But I'm guessing that you took this part from uh, up to date about clinical practice.
2: Uh, a lot of up-to-date as well as first aid for psychiatry and with what I'm experiencing uh, in you World questions in particular uh, when you have questions with somebody in a manic episode and asking what kind of medications you can have lithium is becoming less and less common of an option that they give you and they're wanting you to understand that Velproate and anticonvulsants and atypicals are uh, are acceptable options.
1: So I just want to make sure that we're very clear here that the recent clinical practices moving towards may not be FDA approved. Oh, and quite yeah. often you want to be very, very careful about your shelf exam and what is FDA approved. There are a handful of antipsychotic medications that have a clear FDA approval for manic episodes. And I can't always keep those straight. Do you have uh, like uh, package inserts? Do we have that somewhere? I think what I'll do is I'll, we'll pick this thread up another time and just say very clearly that lithium has an FDA approval, carbamazepine has an FDA Mm -hmm. approval, and valproic acid has an FDA approval Four manic episodes.
2: Yes, so the three.
1: So we often refer to those as the mood stabilizers. And then I'll add one other medication that's considered a mood stabilizer that is not an antipsychotic. Maybe for our next podcast we can pick up the antipsychotic medications. But that's lamotrigine is the fourth mm-hmm. uh, medication. And my recollection of the FDA indication is that it is to um, it, it's used in maintenance to prevent the onset of new. Episodes, so I think the FDA approval speaks to once somebody's stabilized, you can give them gene and it will prevent the uh, time to onset of a new episode. So, so with that, um, what are the common questions that you need to know about lithium?
2: Um, lithium, the biggest one that I've seen that has gotten me a couple of times is uh, you'll get somebody with a patient that's presenting in a manic episode. And then all of a sudden they just include a CBC and a CMP. And the first time I experienced a question like that, I had no idea why they were doing that. And I just went in, selected lithium and got it wrong. And I was supposed to pick up that they had a BUN creatinine, like some uh, inconsistencies with their bad values there, indicating that they had some renal dysfunction. And you need to be able to be aware that uh, before you put somebody on lithium, check their renal function before. Yeah, that's a great one. Any others that you uh, have noticed? No, it seems that the pharmacology questions for bipolar disorder with mania are pretty straightforward. Just know that lithium is your first, check your kidney function, and when lithium isn't an option, understand that your anticonvulsants are reasonable options or your antipsychotics they have the FDA approval.
1: Uh, Then the second part of this, I I think there are also some questions that sometimes pop up with lithium uh, that we saw when we were uh, going through this kind of thing which is uh, maybe a few months later somebody has stabilized on lithium but suddenly they have a, a terrible depressive episode. And the idea is check a thyroid level to see mm-hmm. if there's suppression of the thyroid. Sometimes you might be asked, what do you do if, if lithium has been working? And the answer is treat thyroid rather than stop the lithium. So that's a, another type of question that comes up. I've had students talk to me about uh, shelf prep concepts around... Um, if you have a toxic level where somebody is confused, you may need to address that rapidly with dialysis, right? And stopping the medication, but dialysis is important. And then I think the last question that quite often comes up is that it has a narrow therapeutic window. It has to be a high enough dose to be effective and a low enough dose to not have uh, side effects, which often start with a tremor. You may also be asked to know how to treat a tremor that emerges with Lithium that somebody may want to stay on the medication. That's usually a beta blocker, cool. and I think those are the kinds of questions that I have, over the years, I, I, I've seen those in yeah. the shelf prep and the work I've done. Now let's go to valproic acid. What do you? What are the kinds of questions that show up on valproic acid?
2: Um, to be honest, there's uh, there hasn't been too many questions specifically on valproate. Valproate. Uh, method of action or adverse consequences. It's just knowing that it can be used as far as the psychiatry shelf exam.
1: Fair enough, I think the one that uh, quite often shows up is LFTs, you have to track LFTs with that. And once you're three times the uh, upper Level limit, you need to change the medication. There's also some issues associated with spina bifida, or neural tube mm-hmm. defects, I should say, in pregnant mothers. Right now, the package insert, or at least the last we looked at this, the package insert is supplement with uh, folic acid, yeah. right? And you don't stop the the valproic acid. So, so that is a change from when I was learning. It was stop the medication and. Hope for the best, and now it's continue the medication and supplement with folic acid. Yeah. Uh, the other thing to remember with uh, lithium, we forgot this also in pregnancy uh, that issue oh. of Epstein's anomaly, right? you yeah, can see that A problem. heart defect. Yeah. And then uh, third medication is carbamazepine.
2: Also an anticonvulsant. Also yeah. an anticonvulsant. What do you need to know about carb? Uh, And now there might be a little bit more leniency in the shelf prep material that I've been going through. But again, with carbamazepine, just understanding that it is an option. Mm -hmm. um, There isn't a lot of big adverse reactions that seem very exciting for test writers.
1: There is a couple that do show up that I've heard about at times. Now, I don't know if that's just different test banks, right? The students talked to me about some of the prep exam. Uh, information, the concepts that are tested. And one of those concepts seems to be uh, TENS, um, Toxic Epidermal Necrolitis or Steven Johnson Syndrome. Mm-hmm. You can see the risk of a rash with that. And, and the other thing that I've seen popping up occasionally now is that it's specifically associated with an HLA type. And I want to say, oh. um, and I can't remember what it is, if anybody remembers that. Uh,
0: I want to say HLA, it's like five... Some digit, some digit, Zero
2: 08. <laughs> yeah,
1: something like that. Uh, 1508 or something like that, yeah, if you find that. The other thing to remember with carbamazepine, and I don't know if this shows up anymore, it used to show up, is that it has some intermediates uh, you can sometimes, that previously were attributed to causing things like hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. You may see that pop up, but if you have a choice between lithium and carbamazepine for hyponatremia, uh, you may want to be thinking about lithium in yeah. that case, right?
0: There's also consideration SIADH as a possibility.
1: On, on the uh, lithium, right? Um, or on the I believe carb carbamazepine too. I, I know you see hyponatremia with both, right? And yeah. it's and it's hard to know what always drives that. I can't, I, I don't keep that straight if I don't I, um, read before the podcast.
0: I had a, a lecture on SIADH once that was. Like, what causes it and um, I think on the slide one of the options was everything uh, <laughs> including trauma and uh, like, you know, wow surgery
1: <laughs> that's a pretty good slide uh, did you find the HLA type it is a
0: HLA B fifteen O two allele
1: fifteen O two. Did I say fifteen O eight? I was yeah, well, only yeah. off. I was only off six. I think
0: yeah, <laughs> you were queuing off me. so That's
1: your first mistake. So uh, maybe the first thing I did right. The other thing to remember is that is in Asian populations, right? So if you have a patient with that that is uh, from, uh, and I think it's uh, China, the Hong Kong,
0: Han Dynasty in China. Specifically, Oh, okay, well, good.
1: Um, I wanted to say that it was that eastern Chinese uh, country area and maybe some of the countries that are near that area, but maybe not into uh, Taiwan uh, or, or Japan. And that's something that has, has still been a little bit unclear to me, even though I think the recommendation is for everybody of East Asian descent, if you're considering starting the medication, you need to get that HLA typing first. All right, so um, lamotrigine we won't tackle, but you better know uh, rash, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll go from there. All right, so now that we've done some high yield questions looking at bipolar disorder and the mood stabilizers that are uh, for treatment of acute mania, let's talk about gabapentin. Um, let me let me do just a brief introduction as, as to why we talked about bipolar disorder, and that is that back in uh, I think it was 2004, um, there was a whistle. actually it was 96, I think that the whistleblower started saying, hey, there's a problem here. And they said that Park Davis, Lambert, uh, which was one of the divisions of Park Davis, was um, making claims about what this medication did that were not FDA approved, that weren't validated through research, right? And so uh, there were a couple of lawsuits And I I tried to add up the numbers on this, but one of the claims that they made was that it was a treatment for bipolar disorder. And I think you looked for FDA approved, like articles that showed gabapentin was effective in treatment of bipolar disorder.
2: And you can't find any modern or recent ones. You get, uh, I found a lot of uh, articles stating that it has been recommended in the past don dot, dot <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> I think there are actually two negative trials associated yeah. with it as well. So clearly no evidence for treatment of bipolar yes. disorder. Exactly. And yet uh, it was being sold as such. Now they got in trouble for that and some other claims. Um, and they had, and I'm just going to try and list these where they were included, where this medication specifically ended up in a payout. So Pfizer bought uh, this Portion of Park Davis or all of Park Davis, it's not entirely clear to me. They paid $325 million to, as as a fine and, and maybe there's, part of this was the whistleblower to correct or to pay for that indiscretion. And then they paid another $430 million because Pfizer pharma reps continued to make claims that weren't uh, necessarily substantiated and approved by the FDA to make. And then there was a RICO statute that might've come after uh, Pfizer was a generic. So Pfizer made generics. I think they still cost maybe a dollar a pill, but I thought they were cheaper than that. It's not clear to me how much they cost right now. On the street, they cost one to $3, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a RICO uh, penalty of $141 million. And I I think that's usually uh, mob related charges, right? So racketeering. Um, Then there were a bunch of mistakes they made, and I'm not entirely sure if gabapentin was in this or if this was like all the other quote sins of Pfizer. That included a $2.3 billion fine for off-label promotion and then a $1.3 billion criminal penalty. And then there's been a class action lawsuit for another $325 million. So uh, I'm pretty sure that's separate than the $325 million fine for the Park Davis that I included at the beginning. Now, I I think at this point we're somewhere around a billion dollars for just uh, gabapentin, which was labeled as Neurontin, at least for most of that time, and some of that time was simply uh, gabapentin generic that that Pfizer was making. Um, and then maybe $3.6 billion where it was just part of the mix. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pfizer, one source, I looked all over the Internet for how much they were making from this medication. And I found one reference that I couldn't verify that somewhere around 2003 it was making $2 billion a year on this medication. Um, so I think, uh, Joshua, you said that's a speeding ticket.
2: Mm-hmm. At $2 billion a year, for if that's continued for, at 2003, you said? It was, was
1: 2003, but it came off patent. I think there were changes in, yeah. in the revenue after it went off patent. Yeah. But there was a lot of money made from this molecule, and those were $2, 2003 dollars. Yeah. So, lots of money. Uh, Dr. Franklin was the guy who said, hey, there's there's a violation of the False Claims Act, um, and uh, it went forward. I mean, I had just a little more context of this, too, because I think this is pretty important. Um, It was used for a lot of things, off-label. Now, off-label, by the way, uh, off-label is allowed, it's defined in the United States and Canada as non-indicated use, not necessarily improper or illegal, and you really do, if you're going to use something off-label, it should have some sort of benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And and it should clearly do so. Um, But it is illegal to promote or advertise any medication other than that for which it was pr- uh, approved. So when they were um, off-label promoting things like bipolar disorder, neuropathic pain, complex regional uh, pain syndromes, diabetic neuropathy, trigeminal neuralgia, which it did later get the indication for, right? Uh, ADHD, uh, restless leg syndrome, periodic le- limb movement syndromes, migraines, alcohol and benzodiazepine withdrawal syndromes, right? Those those weren't, um, FDA approved so that it was false promotion, even though, and I'm gonna make this very, very muddy now, there seems to be pretty good data for at least some of those. And uh, one of the lawsuits, uh, the one that uh, Kaiser brought, Kaiser Permanente, uh, the $141 million RICO uh, statute uh, violation, even though, part, even though uh, Kaiser said, hey, they're falsely promoting this, and they should be fined, Kaiser Permanente continued to prescribe it for all of those indications that it was yelling about and even had it on their website as a, as a treatment. So, so there's a lot of muddy here, right? There are a lot of things that, I, I wanna make sure I've been very critical of gabapentin in the past. The use particularly, or the off-label use for bipolar disorder is, seems to me to be terribly inappropriate. Off-label promotion is a line that should not be crossed. I believe, and and yet off-label use seems to be reasonable because there's a lot of data for off-label use of gabapentin. Nobody will go back and do the studies to get an FDA approval at this point, and yet Cochrane reviews show that there's data for at least things like uh, uh, let's see, is it uh, diabetic neuropathy? I think the mm-hmm. data is pretty clear, and and this is where maybe the story starts to get a little bit muddier, in that. Um, Physicians who use these medications off-label, there was a study looking at at, at these physicians, and the physicians that use things off-label maybe for things that are helpful and maybe for things that are not, feel that they're ahead of the research. That's kind of the quotes that they have, that um, negative results in clinical trials didn't necessarily deter clinicians who are using gabapentin off-label, which is a little bit concerning to me. That gets into the more scary area. Um, But the other thing that made me somewhat nervous is that most people could not identify FDA-approved uses for gabapentin. Now, again, this, this gets muddy, and I think you're gonna talk about this a little bit because there have been a whole lot of, of articles, let me say guidelines, many of them driven by uh, federal agencies where we've tried to replace opiate use with gabapentin. Now, in that context, I'm going to shut up for a few minutes. <laughs> Because I, I think I've set the table for what I hope is a good discussion about gabapentin. So, David, you have a lot to say, and I'm just going to kind of sit back and listen and ask questions. How does that sound? And, and Joshua, I hope you'll join me in asking some of those questions.
0: Sure. I think uh, I would respond to the last statement you made with sort of a rhetorical question, which is, is gabapentin or is pregabalin a good replacement for opioids? And I think... Maybe need to emphasize the rhetorical aspect of the question. (laughs) Uh,
1: It it might be a good replacement if opiates are eliminated and opioids are eliminated.
0: Yeah.
1: It might be. Clearly, opioids are problematic. Pain relief, I think we've had a couple of good discussions about this. Pain relief is not what we would expect with opioids and opiates. Um, And having said that, the... Pitch for gabapentin to replace opiates and opioids has come at a cost. I think. Yeah. So I'll send the rhetorical question back to you. <laughs> Tell me why I'm hedging, and let's listen to your presentation because I think you'll explain why I'm hedging.
0: Yeah. So I I believe that the pitch thus far, um, and part of the reason why. Both these substances have been prescribed off-label for so many different cases. Is there's sort of this um, maybe it's the heavy marketing that kind of created the supposition that there's really no negative side effects. This is just going to it's going to solve all these different problems. You know, you don't have to worry about misuse potential. Um, you know, um, whereas with opioids, you definitely have to worry about people forming mm-hmm. a habit and um, in this case.
1: Let me say it a little bit differently, if I can. The side effects of gabapentin outside of sedation seem uh-huh. to be fairly infrequent and fairly limited.
0: Yeah, and, and certainly the fear of respiratory depression is not the same that you would experience with taking an opiate-based medication.
1: The street value is much less.
0: Yeah, there's that as well, <laughs> um, though as we'll see, because of the pervasiveness of the prescription of gabapentin and pregabalin, it essentially becomes a street drug just off the, the basis that it's so pervasive. Um, I believe you mentioned street value is somewhere between a dollar to three dollars, and if we look at data from the UK, it's like around a pound for one tablet of 300 milligram of Neurontin. Um, so
1: there's a harm reduction it's, it's not the same, crave. it's not as craveable for most people as yeah. opiates and opioids. And yet, it's a problem. So tell me how gabapentin works.
0: So the basic mechanism of action between the two drugs is pretty similar. Um, and I'll get kind of into the classification of um, the... Um, What am I trying to say? Like, the, there is a prescriptive prohibition on Lyrica or pregabalin that doesn't exist on um, Gabapen. on gabapentin or Marantin. Um So I should say it's scheduled. That was the, the word oh. I was looking for. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: Ly- Lyrica or pregabalin has a schedule, right? It's schedule four?
0: Uh, schedule five. Five. And then, but we'll, as we'll see... There's actually certain states that are starting to schedule gabapentin um, or already have it listed as a scheduled drug. Yeah. But I'll get into that a little bit later. The basic mechanism, essentially, it's sort of a misnomer. It's called gabapentin, but it doesn't actually bind to the GABA receptor. Um, And it binds to a, a subunit on the presynaptic channel that would Essentially, cause the release of neurotransmitters that would stimulate something to trigger a pain threshold. Um, so, by blocking those substances presynaptically, it inhibits pain transmission. Whereas, when we think of something that would stimulate GABA, we think of something that causes the stimulation of the receptor and then causing that to um, not trigger an action potential because we're bringing the, uh, the cell essentially negative versus preventing the stimulation of the cell, like in gabapentin, through that blockade.
1: So let me just make sure I've got this, because it took me a while, right? I had conflated the use of the presynaptic alpha-2-delta ligands, uh-huh. uh, gabapentin and pregabalin. I had conflated those with gabaergic Neurons, right? And so, if you think about GABAergic neurons, you're thinking about inhibitory neurons, and you're thinking about um, activating the inhibitory neurons, uh, causing a sedating or calming effect, right? So, Ativan, yeah, lorazepam, clonazepam, benzodiazepines, barbiturates, alcohol, um, sedative hypnotics like uh, Ambien, yeah. right? These these medications increase the activity of the inhibitory neurons and now what we're talking about is presynaptically reducing the activity of excitatory neurons glutaminergic neurons did i get that close yeah you did finally (laughs) how many times did we have to walk through that before we did this podcast like seven
0: well and honestly the name's not doing any favors really because it's as gaba in the name And I believe when it was initially developed, the idea was to find something that was like a GABA-releasing analog that would help to prevent seizures, um, at least initially with gabapentin.
1: And instead, what we found is rather than increasing GABA or strengthening the inhibitory neurons, what we did was uh, reduce the activity of the excitatory neurons. Yeah. Now, and again, just very quickly, mechanism of action, this molecule, or these molecules, Disrupt. They're not like antagonists. They—they. They, it's more like they're modulating molecules or something, where they're disrupting the alpha two delta subunit, keeping the neuron from being able to exocytose the neurotransmitter.
0: Yeah, and that's occurring through inhibiting the release of calcium in the cell, which would normally allow those neurotransmitters to bind um, and then be sort of uh, exocytosed
1: into the synaptic cleft.
0: Yeah, and so by inhibiting calcium release, we're effectively cutting that pathway.
1: So mechanism of action, check. Now we understand why... I, I think we have some sort of sense now as to why there might be a, a euphoria with this, right? All right, so so there might be a euphoria. Is that why it has misuse?
0: Um, so in reporting... Kind of the effects that people experience when they are misusing uh, gabapentin and my understanding the part of the reason why lyrica or pregabalin is scheduled is that it's just a little bit easier to reach this sort of state on like a lower dose but otherwise they're effectively causing a similar thing but it's kind of anxiolytic um, so you get sort of the effect that you would get being buzzed on alcohol or, or something like that but it's not necessarily a euphoria in the same way that opioids are when they're binding to the mu receptor.
1: So more like an anti-anxiolytic effect, sort of like a, an Ativan or lorazepam effect.
0: Yeah, okay. it, that's sort my of. understanding from people who have uh, been misusing it. Okay. Um, let's...
1: The, the actual misuse, mm-hmm. I think, is fairly limited. It's present, but it's limited. Yeah, and and if I understood correctly, I, I think we saw an article from something called Pew, P E W. Yeah, and they talked about uh, Appalachian states where a lot of uh, the deaths, about a third of the deaths, had gabapentin specifically involved in those deaths. Yeah, and and what wasn't clear to me, there there seemed to be some indication. That these uh, Johnnies or Gabbies—I think that was the nickname—enhance um, the euphoric effects of heroin, hmm. and when taken alone in high doses, can produce a marijuana-like effect. But but most of the stuff we read didn't talk about that. I don't think. Tell me tell me the role of intentional use, trying to augment high. Did you did you find
0: anything about that? Um, only in the epidemiological. Uh, casualties or fatality data that seemed to really present an issue. I couldn't figure out necessarily why um, people were using it. My guess is uh, and this is purely stipulated or um, speculative. supposition, yeah, yeah. speculative is that as somebody is a, um, using something like an opioid or, or heroin for a long enough period of time, they're going to be developing physical um, resistance or um, as the dependency builds then they have to use more and more of that drug whereas if they use an augmenting agent or something like that and they may be aware that you know this could kill me so maybe if I use something like gabapentin or whatever to get that euphoric feeling so
1: so your supposition was a tolerance issue to try and overcome tolerance I, the, there was one article that I read that suggested that Part of the increase in deaths, and again, I, I don't think the data is very good on this, but part of the increase in deaths was, we have this huge push for um, deprescribing opiates and opioids, and gabapentin has been pushed by every major federal organization that's involved in trying to address the opiate crisis. Yeah. So so my, my sense was that uh, many of these overdoses, uh, uh, many of the deaths that we're seeing, and they're showing up now there, there was an a MMWR weekly notes, and it looked at uh, 25, 30 uh, jurisdictions. They pulled data on it over a year's period. There were about 50,000 deaths. Seems like a lot of deaths, and about 10% of those deaths had gabapentin on board. Yeah. Now, it also made a comment that they thought the gabapentin, and I'm not sure I understood this the way it was written, that potentially half those deaths, so 5,000 of deaths had gabapentin involved, whether that was gabapentin added to try and wean people off of opiates, opioids or not, wasn't clear to me, might have been that. Uh, some of that seemed to indicate that gabapentin addition to the opiate treatment was what killed the person. And I think that the, the, um, the story I'm seeing is respiratory depression. Yeah. Is it, that? Go. It
0: does seem like if someone is misused opioids the addition of gabapentin to that um, situation actually is a harmful thing where it may be done in an effort to try and wean someone off of their opioid use. Um, it it seems to have a, a backfiring where it actually increases, the, increases res- the risk of respiratory depression from at least the data that I was looking at.
2: Okay. Are we Okay. Seeing- also, rates of uh, high co like co use of gabapentin with alcohol and benzodiazepines yeah. and other sedatives as well.
0: Uh, so, in the general population, meaning somebody who isn't misusing any substance, um, the misuse of gabapentin was somewhere between point six to zero point eight percent in the population, mm-hmm. and much higher in someone that has a comorbid substance use disorder, particularly
1: twenty percent. Right?
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think I've even seen higher than that up to 40 to 60% of individuals who um, they're using an opioid, alcohol, uh, cannabis, or um, I'm trying to remember if there's another thing that seemed to be a common substance that
2: it sounds like a lot of pain medications and uh, um, it seems like an, depress- an anti- a anxiety, depressants. anxiety direction. Yeah. Depressants, yeah. yeah. Um, Let's, let's go ahead
1: and change gears just a little bit because I think the story we're trying to tell is difficult to prove one way or the other. There, there is part of the story which is uh, intentional um, augmentation of substance effect and, and the, you know, the news story says um, the work from the street might be to augment the high from heroin, right? So deaths in Kentucky, Johnny's and Gabby's, that's that story. I think there's also a story where there might be accidental overdeath with respiratory suppression associated with the addition of gabapentin to uh, pain management uh, approaches, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but I don't know that we had clear data for that either, right? I think there's supposition in some of the articles we're writing. So, so I think the take home point is don't prescribe gabapentin with opiates. If you're going to treat pain syndromes with gabapentin, you need to do it absent opiates right and have a clear discussion about the risk associated with adding those two together. Does that sound like the take-home point?
0: Yeah and it, it there may be individuals who are pain specialists who are using it to some degree, but I would probably say defer to to the pain the specialist. specific you know success that they've had with that and maybe as a general practice guideline, avoid co-prescribing.
1: Yeah, how, how do you manage pain with, with deprescribing opiates and starting something like that? Sounds like a very difficult question. Just just to, to make sure that we're all on the same page, the FDA approvals, I actually remember this for gabapentin because there's only two, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a an approval associated with seizures it's fairly complicated it's i think adjunctive not yeah. not uh, the only treatment and it uh, has some various age restrictions depending on where you look at that and then there is now a post herpetic neuralgia treatment yeah. those are the only two fda right. indications
0: and i could be wrong about this but i thought uh, ticdoloro or trigeminal neuralgia was you one
1: definitely used for that but
2: i didn't i didn't see the fda approval and Lyrica definitely has a couple of bonus ones mm-hmm. on their package insert that Gabapentin did not have. Um, Which it, ones were those? It looked like on the package insert that I was able to find on the FDA's website, they had peripheral neuropathy, fibromyalgia, um, and neuropathic pain, as mm-hmm. well as post and adjunct therapy and seizures.
1: And pain associated with spinal cord injuries, you have written there as well, yeah. I'm cheating.
2: Um, So
1: so I think, and this is where this becomes a lot more challenging for me, right? So I've been a person that has been frustrated with the use of off-label gabapentin. Yet, if you look at the FDA approval for Lyrica, many of the things that were off-label promotions for gabapentin have been validated in another alpha-2-delta ligand uh, pregabalin. And if I understand correctly, I, I kind of went back and looked at the history. You wrote something about this, where this was developed by a, a chemist who developed pregabalin first. Uh-huh. Then I think they had a visiting professor who said, hey, or maybe it was a postdoc. They said, hey, go see what you can develop around this molecule. And so they developed a bunch of molecules like pregabalin. One of those was gabapentin, right? Yeah. Um, but it seems like there's some validation of the off-label use with the FDA approvals that Lyrica has. Now, I'm not a fan of saying because another molecule with a a similar mechanism of action has a benefit means that everyone does. I'm not a fan of that. But I do look a little further then, and so one of the things we can do is look at something like a Cochrane Review, where they're able to say that a lot of these off-label, we've got birds in the background. We had a (laughs) thunderstorm there a few minutes ago. But uh, so so a Cochrane Review says basically (laughs)
0: Uh, Feast for crows Uh,
1: Yes Says that basically everything but bipolar disorder Has at least some data Right? Almost everything I think um, when I look at the list I think ADHD Didn't have very good data And maybe migraines don't have very good data Mm. But once you get past those things Bipolar disorder, migraines, ADHD The neuropathic Pain syndromes and maybe Restless legs Mm-hmm. There might be some data for those.
0: Yeah. The thing I saw that blew my mind, and probably the reason why we have all this data, was at one point uh, gabapentin was the 10th most prescribed drug in the United States. And I think at one point it was more prescribed than even lisinopril.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and, um, and then I, I pulled in some data that showed that Ohio was considering scheduling it because it was the number one most prescribed drug in Ohio. Which is
2: crazy because in in another study that we found, um, it looked like almost 83 to 90% of the use for gabapentin was off-label. So that's a very strange combination of being such a highly prescribed drug with the vast majority of its use not being directed towards what it was meant to, or at least its FDA-approved uses.
0: It would kind of suggest that people that are prescribing it, they're probably not aware of the FDA indications or they're not adhering to that very tightly. Well, that,
1: that Canadian article said yes, right, that they don't really know that. And yet maybe they're also aware of the data that the Cochrane Review article would, would say there are uses for it. That's why I think this is such a muddy topic, right? Um, I, I don't really like that we're off-label so much and that we don't have a mechanism to get FDA approvals for medications that have gone off-patent.
0: And if I was to take speculation, I'd say, like, the aggressive marketing that was done with Pfizer going out and saying, you know, use it for this, this, and this.
1: So so here's the challenge, though. The market speaks, right? The market speaks in a way. If it didn't work, would people keep going back to fill the scripts? So maybe even though I don't believe it works for bipolar disorder and it shouldn't be used in that setting, I don't believe it works for migraines, probably shouldn't be used in that setting unless it's far down on the list of use, right? The data is kind of borderline on that the way I read the Cochrane article. Um, If you're using it for all of these other things, and those are a lot of pain syndromes, maybe it was aggressive marketing, but maybe it wouldn't have worked if it, the medication hadn't been effective in most of those areas
0: yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I, I have a lot of thoughts about this in, right
0: uh, like a lot of the data on those particular syndromes when compared to no treatment at all then there is clearly demonstrated efficacy yeah
2: um, do you think that there's also this sense of a lot of the treatments that they're being directed at is kind of uh, doctors throwing their hands in the air and saying I don't know we could try gabapentin. X, Y, or Z, yeah, because there's not a lot of options, or in, sometimes it feels like a hopeless pathology.
0: In kind of a similar way in which I've seen TCAs um, prescribed oh. now, because they don't are, are obviously not first line for depression, but an individual comes in with neuropathic pain or migraines and, migraines and depression, and say, well, maybe a TCA might help. I think sometimes I've seen gabapentin used for something like, well, I've got pain and I have trouble getting to sleep. Well, let's try Gapapentin and see how you do on that. And ideally, focus, uh, take the emphasis away from polypharmacy in hopes that.
1: I think they're interesting questions. It's very easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, right? Um, And and I think that's maybe one of the take-homes I have from this uh, review of the information. And that is, we didn't come to this point in a vacuum There's clearly misuse, it has more misuse potential than anybody seemed to want to talk about 20 years ago or be aware of, who knows. And yet there's a tremendous amount of off-label use that may be justified in this case.
0: Yeah, and while um, using gabapentin in an individual as a substance use disorder like opioids, interestingly enough, in alcohol withdrawal, there seems to be some promising data in regards to like augment- augmentation to a or something like that, and um, decreasing alcohol cravings.
1: Yeah, very very limited with that. Um, I think the FDA or the uh, VA uses gabapentin as a second line alcohol and with and benzodiazepine withdrawal agent. Yeah. Right. So anti epileptics have been used that way. I think there was some work done up at the University of Utah. One of my mentors. Uh, a pharmacist up there had been doing an outpatient clinic to help people withdraw from alcohol and they were using, I think, uh, carbamazepine at the time, right? Also not a lot of data. There were some case series looking at that. Um, so, so not a lot of data, but used by a, at least one institution, a, appeal to authority, failure of logic, um, but one large institution that usually does a pretty good job with picking how they go about things, so um, interesting how this medication wends its way into so many things, right? I think that's one of the fascinating things about this. we I'll add one other just reference very quickly In that there was there was a case control study. This was Gomes in 2017. They were looking at gabapentin plus an opiate um, in death versus uh, opiate plus NSAIDs. They did a case control study and uh, they found that gabapentin plus an opiate uh, roughly doubled the risk of death. Uh, gabapentin plus an NSAID did not have any effect on rates of death. Uh, so, so I think we're seeing a lot of data about the risk, right? I do want you, if you wouldn't mind, David, um, mm-hmm. I think we're we're maybe getting lost a little bit in this, you know, isn't this odd kind of thing? And maybe we're even getting a little bit redundant now. But if you wouldn't mind, talk about the overdose symptoms associated with gabapentin and pregabalin. Okay.
0: Um, so common side effects with Gabapentin overdose, uh, you'd expect drowsiness, sedation, blurred vision, slurred speech, somnolence, uh, uncontrollable jerking motions, even anxiety. And taken in high amounts, possibly breathing suppression, coma, and death. If especially when combined with CNS depressants. The pregabalin overdose, you could see severe drowsiness, severe ataxia, blurred vision, slurred speech. Uncontrolled jerking movements, anxiety, um, and then, likewise, usually not fatal unless combined with another CNS depressant. Though um, some reports have shown kidney failure, and also myoclonus, um, possibly thought to be due to an accumulation of the drug. And um,
1: yeah. I think that is that the that's the boxed warning, right? That you get with some people have. Uh, strange accumulation of the drug, limited metabolism of it for whatever reason, yeah, and excretion. And one of the things that's interesting to me is there was somebody who once told me, and now I want to look this up, that it's difficult to overdose on gabapentin. And if you look at the differences between those two syndromes, I think the reason is because it's hard to absorb past a certain amount of gabapentin. For example, I thought that it was difficult to absorb more than like three to four grams of gabapentin a day, or at any given time. And, and I don't know if you came across anything um, along those lines.
0: My understanding is it's very bioavailable despite that. So you can take it with food and no worries because it's going to start working within an hour or so. But I yeah. think that there's an upper limit threshold probably for is what you're fer- referring to of what you can take. So... Um,
1: I think it's an upper limit of what actually gets into your body. Yeah. But I don't, I, maybe that's something I'll have to look up now after.
0: I think the therapeutic range is somewhere between 900 milligrams a day, and I'm assuming that's 300 Three milligrams times. TID. Yeah. And then upper limit would be 3600 um, at it was, the very highest. It was
1: interesting that nobody ever developed a long acting formulation where you could get one pill that kind of worked through the day. And that's pretty common with most of the TID medications that came out at the time.
0: I think so. there was attempts, but I'm not sure. I didn't look too much further. But.
1: Yeah, and, and I know that uh, there were a lot of things that were happening. I think uh, Pfizer was trying to get pregabalin to the market, so they were trying to limit competition. They were trying to hold on to process patents that gave them exclusivity past 2003. I don't know that they were able to hold on to it. But gabapentin, uh, to your point. We found also that it was, in, in one of the MMWR notes that we reviewed about the the frequency of deaths that we're seeing in opiate-related deaths, um, they said it was the seventh most prescribed medication the same year of that uh, tenth most that we found. Yeah. So we found the 2019 year, a so very high uh, frequently prescribed medication, clearly, throughout the United States. Yeah. What have we not talked about so far?
0: Um. I mean, I think that, in some sense, the fact that it's been prescribed off-label so much lends this data where we don't necessarily have the FDA-approved indications, but we see that maybe people are a little more justified in some of the use cases. Um, But it also kind of muddies the picture of, you know, how, how can we avoid someone misusing the substance and I think that comes down to probably individual stewardship. So just looking at patients and seeing if they have any substance use history and considering other options at that point um, so that we aren't aren't contributing to patient fatality rates. and um, Maybe consider other options and, and shake the stigma that, you know, these are just inert substances and you can't go wrong with them. Um, I found just kind of anecdotally that it tends to be a very polarizing drug and that people will either use it almost without discretion or they will avoid it without discretion assuming it's similarly as dangerous as an opiate
1: all good and all bad
0: yeah okay (laughs) and I'd say the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle um, where it probably has some better use cases but you also still have to be um, cognizant of the fact that you know it's a drug that can be misused and um, and try to avoid that because as we did see there's death is a possibility.
1: You had something else that you brought into this podcast that I haven't asked about and I'd like you to comment on it. Uh-huh. Use versus misuse. Yeah. In, into some of the um, prep work at least.
0: Yeah and I had put that because I felt like maybe that was a little confusing. Um, when, we were talking about with Josh, kind of determining, you know, what's what's abuse mean? Why are we changing terms? And I think a lot of that is sort of patient-centered language, where we don't really want to um, blame patients for having a substance use disorder, and misuse um, is kind of centered around more maybe patient-centered language.
1: Uh, use or misuses? Uh,
0: misuse. Um,
1: as opposed to abuse.
0: As opposed to... Abuse, Uh, the term abuse was found to have a high association with negative judgments and punishments when it was kind of ascribed to patients. Um, And so there's legitimate use of prescription medications where a patient maybe develops a physical dependency and then there's also maybe use other than was prescribed to the patient. In those cases we would consider that to be a misuse of the medication.
1: I like that discussion, I, it, uh, I think it helped me a little bit with patient centered language and I, and I think it's interesting because um, pretty clearly many people had to choose to take a potentially addicting substance um, and and it led down a very difficult pathway, right? And I think it's it's very easy for physicians to say, hey if you just hadn't done that, right, and that's not helpful to treatment. Hmm. And and I think the other thing that happens is as physicians, as ready as we are to tell our patients how bad they blew it by taking that first step, we so often prescribe substances and are uh, unable to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, and, and unable to stop dependency slash addiction kinds of processes. And we don't blame ourselves nearly as much as we blame our patients for that, do we? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see patients who say, man, I created a, a person that's addicted to this medication. It's
0: all my fault. All my fault. No, you just don't hear that very often. Or prefaced the prescription with education, you know, giving them some autonomy in the decision, saying, you know, there's, there's a risk of physical dependency with this substance. Is that something you're okay with? Are
1: you willing to potentially lose everything you own because you become addicted to this pill? Yeah. It's a kind of a big statement, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, all right, so in, in a sense, I felt like you kind of gave your take-home a few minutes ago. Uh, do you want to give, if there's something you haven't said, do you want to give me your take-home?
0: No, I think uh, I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah,
1: all right, we'll come back to you for a, a final word other than uh, uh, on that note. How does that sound? All right. <laughs> Joshua, what's uh, your? what are your thoughts?
2: Uh, I think uh, as cliche as it is, and maybe some physicians are tired of hearing this, uh, statement of, it's the art of medicine. We're really trying to figure out these kind of grayer, as Dr. Roundy called it, muddy areas of FDA approval, off-label use, misuse versus use, um, other than prescribed. It's interesting to see that story behind gabapentin and seeing good doctors trying their best to help their patients. But, uh, and, uh, and the repercussions that sometimes we weren't necessarily expecting because of that use.
1: So this, I have a couple of thoughts about this. One, I changed I changed my view a little bit. Uh, I, Park Davis and Pfizer clearly did the wrong thing. You can't promote off-label, right? That's just the rules. Um, I, I have a few, a little more heartburn about a company being able to get a RICO uh, Violation on a company when it's doing the same thing on its websites, right? I, I don't know all the details there. A judge that is uh, clearly more versed in in the legal situation and had more information available to them, made a decision along those lines, right? Th- those are things that I, I I don't really dispute, right? Those are those are found to be fact in a court of law. What gets harder for me though is when is it the right decision to use something off label? when do we know that the data is valuable? When we are desperate, what do we turn to, right? Even though some of the, the comments from the group that I, I mentioned this study where people were using things off label, they didn't know what the label allowed. Um, they said that they were ahead of the research. Those things made me a little bit nervous. The flip side of that though is that they also said, hey, when I have no other options, what should I do? Do I give up and quit trying? when I've tried all of the tools available to me. Now, whether they've tried all the tools or not harder to know, right? There are a lot of tools that are available, but uh, um, that that kind of, it it re-centered me on the discussion kind of in a little bit different place about gabapentin. Um, I think it also helped me find a better place for prescribing, right? We sometimes try gabapentin for some things here in uh, mental health. Um, It's not used very often on my unit, but it is occasionally. And maybe for anxiety, but there's not a lot of great data on that. Maybe I need to go back and look at that. Should I be using it a little bit more in uh, pain syndromes? Maybe so. Do I need to make sure that there's no opioid involved? Yes. Do I need to be careful about using it in somebody who has a history of substance use disorders? It looks like it, right? It looks like that's probably a bad pathway. Do I need to talk about the risk of Overdose uh, or respiratory depression associated with use of this in opiates. I think so Now the other thing that kind of crossed my mind that when I first started in psychiatry uh, Short-acting benzodiazepines bad Short-acting opioids and opiates bad You need to use long-acting opiates and long-acting benzodiazepines, right? You need to use long-acting versions of medications that have addiction potential because that seems to reduce the risks associated with dependency. And some of the pill-taking behavior that pops up with Xanax, for example, uh, Alprazolam. And yet, almost immediately, we started seeing all sorts of reports of people who were taking methadone and clonazepam, two long-acting medications, sort of what was being taught as the standard of care at the time. I think uh, Anna Nicole Smith had these substances on board. If I remember right, I think Heath Ledger also had these substances on board. Um, And what we found out very quickly was that just because the standard of care is to try and move to long-acting medications as sort of a knee-jerk response to the dependency um, that seemed to evolve around the short-acting medications, doesn't mean that the right thing was done, right? So we now have a lot of guidance coming through a lot of different pathways uh, I, I know that I did a lot of CME uh, in the last three or four years on treatment of pain and, and opiate, uh, opioids and how they're affecting society. And a lot of those government-approved programs uh, told us to shift from opioids to gabapentin as an alternative right. And, and that shift clearly has come with some consequences, I think. Right. That's, that's my best guess. So uh, the law of unintended consequences rears its ugly head again. We now know, be careful prescribing long-acting opioids, methadone, for example, with clonazepam. Right? We need to find other treatments for anxiety. And now we're learning that we shouldn't be prescribing or co-prescribing uh, opioids and uh, gabapentin together. Right? It's, it's, th- there's not an easy pathway through the opiate crisis that, has, uh, that we're facing right now. I think that's a very long take home, but this podcast did change a lot of my thoughts about how I think about some of these things. So, uh, Dave, I'll let you wrap it up and maybe team out
0: us. Well, I uh, I'm glad to hear that because I'm sure this is something that you've had you know years and years of experience with. So to be able to shed any new insight at all is a personal revelation for myself. Wait, okay. I was going to give you the last <laughs> word,
1: but, but that happens all the time. The more yeah. I read, hopefully the better I become. And thank you for that. But I, go ahead now <laughs> that I've totally interrupted you. If
0: that's the case, then eventually like your brain's going to get so big that your skull's not going to be able to contain it anymore. <laughs> just a sponge. Just.
1: I'm full of mistakes. <laughs> I'm the first to admit it.
0: Um. I uh, hope that you, as the listener, were able to get some new insights about these two medications. And if you've been seeing them in clinical practice, that you were able to take some pearls away from um, the indications for these medicines, and then maybe some new uh, reflections about ways in which you would continue or not continue to prescribe them. Um, with that said, team out. Team out. Team out. Batman strikes again.